In today's episode of New Frontiers, I am particularly excited to welcome Alex Honnold. Best known for his breathtaking free solo ascents, Alex's audacious 2017 climb of El Capitan in Yosemite National Park not only captured global attention through the Oscar-winning film Free Solo, but also marks a pretty significant raising of the bar in the sport of rock climbing. Now, what you might not know about Alex is that he's also a pioneer in renewable energy. In 2012, he started giving away 30% of his income, a commitment that spawned the Honold Foundation, a nonprofit that today helps marginalized communities around the world transition to solar energy. What struck me most was Alex's pragmatic, no-nonsense approach to doing and it was a reminder of the methodical, step-by-step sort of work it takes to tackle the most daunting challenges. Alex has a fundamental bias towards action over words. He steers well clear of descending into clickbait or cliche, and as you'll hear, he even called me out on one or two questions that were bordering on being unoriginal or trite. It was a brilliant refreshing conversation and I hope you enjoy it too. Thanks for tuning in. I've been an FT subscriber for nearly 14 years. Uh, I've spoken at the FT Weekend Festival and they have even written about me a few times. So I'm particularly happy to tell you that this episode of New Frontiers is brought to you by the Financial Times. One of the common threads between my polar career and the work I do today as an investor is the importance of navigating confidently and having the knowledge and the tools that let me take bold decisions. For me, the FT has been an essential tool in navigating a life and a new career in an equally challenging environment. And reading it means you can do more than just catch up. You can stay one step ahead across topics like technology, business, and politics. There's also Climate Capital, the FT's dedicated climate change resource, where you can not only stay one step ahead on the most pressing climate developments, but you can also find out how upcoming New Frontiers guest Patrick Grant is pioneering plastic-free sportswear at Community Clothing. For free articles and for up to 40% off a standard digital subscription, visit ft.com slash newfrontiers. That's ft.com slash newfrontiers. Offer available until 28th of March. Alex Honnold. Now, I, I was looking this afternoon, rummaging through the shelves behind me for the most obscure climbing book um, that I could find. I don't have that many, but I bet I've got something that Alex hasn't come across. I found a book appropriately called Climbing, uh, 1986. Mm. Uh, Ron Fawcett, Jeff Lowe, Paul Nunn, Alan Rouse. Ron Fawcett opens, sort of opens it talking about the rock climbing bit. And he, he explains that rock climbing is about being out in the fresh air and having fun on rocks. And he adds, uh, this is a few paragraphs later, uh, the fact remains that to many non-climbers, it is a totally incomprehensible activity. Now, y- you have, you've taken having fun on rocks to a level that is incomprehensible incompre- to, to 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 most of if not almost everyone but wh- where did where did the fresh air bit start this connection with the the outdoors natural where, where did this begin with you oh that's interesting i mean i think i had the connection to the outdoors sort of independent of my rock climbing when i started just because i started rock climbing in a gym and i started climbing indoors which is honestly how most people access climbing nowadays 
but I'd already started going camping and doing things outside with my family. You know, my, my family grew up with a, with a cabin in the mountains, like when my grandparent, my grandpa built this like shack thing, but we spent summers there as a kid. And so, you know, I'd always spent a lot of time outdoors. And then I think that there was the natural, you know, sort of evolution that as I learned how to rock climb enough, then eventually you, you start taking that outdoors more. Now, the, the, the point of this podcast was um, about talking to, learning from people who've done extraordinary, noteworthy things in one field and who've since transferred their their wisdom, the things they've learned in that previous field to tackling climate change in, in, in the broadest sense of, of what that might mean. Now, in your in your I guess three decades of climbing, you have seen some of the most pristine unsport environments on the planet. Was there a a specific moment or, or place or event where where this really hit home? You know, the importance of of, of tackling, um, I guess, an environmental degradation, or is it become just a sort of a gradual process of of realization? I would say that my feelings around the environment are so you know, inexorably tied to my climbing. All of my experiences outdoors have sort of informed my opinions on the environment and 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 therefore my my sort of passion for trying to do something useful for the environment. You know, I started uh, the Honnell Foundation 10 years ago that supports solar projects around the world. I guess it'll be 12 next year. That's crazy. But so, I mean, I started the foundation, you know, I've always wanted to do something useful. It's just, yeah, I don't know. I mean, if we're really like going deep in a podcast, I mean, so I had an experience this summer, actually, I was doing a bike tour from Colorado to Alaska, we bicycled something like 2000 plus miles, and then climbed some mountains along the way. And my big takeaway, actually, from that experience was the realization that so much of basically my realization that I think climbing in some ways has has spoiled me to the extent to which I think that the world is is unsullied you know basically like when you go to climbing destinations you're going to the most pristine places on earth for the most part and you still see signs of climate change in climbing areas you see glaciers receding you see you know glacial lakes changing year over year things like that and so like you see climate change even in climbing areas but climbing areas for the most part are the least hospitable and and like basically most difficult places on earth because they're giant jagged peaks on glaciers in the middle of nowhere and so they are basically the last places on earth that are totally untouched by industry and and you know basically extractive industries of whatever kind. And so on this bike tour that I did this summer, we biked across, you know, over a thousand miles of northern British Columbia, which I'd always sort of in my mind assumed was like wild virgin forest because it's like mm. the middle of nowhere and there are no people. But as it turns out, it's all been logged. And every town mm. we passed through was we're all sort of I don't want to say like failed logging towns, but they're all towns mm. that have gone through boom and bust cycles of logging and mining and, and then the ones on the coast fishing as well. But basically towns whose economies have yo-yoed back and forth with like booms and busts, which obviously has not served the people there. It's like you go into some of these places and it's pretty, pretty grim for the mm. folks and then super grim for the environment. And basically it made me realize that so much of nature is actually way more degraded than I think of because as a climber, all the places I climb are actually pretty pristine still. Mm. Anyway, this is a long ramble, but it was sort of eye-opening for me in that, you know, you always think of climbing places as nature. So you think that all the rest of nature is fine too. And then this summer I was like, man, we just biked across 2000 miles of nature. And basically the only stuff that was pristine were the places protected by national parks. It was mm. like super grim. I'm curious about how the mindset, the skills that you've developed from an extraordinary climbing career might translate into the work you're doing now specifically through the foundation and, and, and tackling climate change is there some crossover what's in your toolkit that, that is proving useful well i don't know if there are any 
I don't know. I feel like people ask this questions like this, you know, hoping for like the, the, the magic bullet or like that thing that you learn. And I'm sure your experience on expeditions. Alex Honnold, like bullet point life hacks of like, well, no, I mean, but I'm sure people ask you the same thing. Like what'd you learn being alone in a tent for so long? And you're like, did you learn anything other than the fact that if you want to do something hard, you just set out and start doing it, you know, it's like step by step, you just like grind away, you do the thing, you know? And I feel like that's kind of what I've learned through climbing is that if you want to do something that's really challenging, you basically just have to start doing it. You start working at it. You like take your time. You learn things along the way. You know, you fail sometimes. You try harder. You keep working. It's like, I don't know. I mean, I think that's the proper sort of climate change analogy, like metaphor, whatever. Mm-hmm. Like the, the proper climate change lesson is you're like, oh, it's seemingly insurmountable challenge, mm-hmm. but you just chip away at it the best you can. Mm-hmm. And, you know, eventually you get there. Did you did you ever find maybe on some of the, the bigger, longer routes you've done, points where the goal the ultimate goal the vision the dream rather than becoming rather than being motivating has it ever been the the opposite intimidating yeah and actually i was going to say that i think maybe one of the challenges with rock climbing like big rock climbing goals versus uh you know say arctic traversing or or polar traversing uh is that the progress isn't always linear in the same way that uh that and and I think that's exactly what you're what you're asking is like some of the biggest goals are so daunting that you just don't really know how to tackle them directly and so mm-hmm. then sometimes you basically let the big goals sit dormant for many years. I mean, in my case with El Cap, uh, you know, I I thought I was gonna basically I put it on my to do list of like next season solo El Cap starting in 2009, mm-hmm. but then I didn't actually do it till 2017. So it's basically like eight years that I kept punting, you know, pushing it further and further down the, the list because each year you'd be like, there is no way like that is totally insane. And so I think that, um, yeah, it's true that with really big goals, sometimes you do sort of have to beat around them in different ways, you know, like find other and, and, and I did that with El Cap. I mean, I basically made a little sub list of like, these are the things that will get me to El Cap. And then each one of those, uh, each of those were sort of cutting edge solos in their own right. And mm. each of those kind of had a whole training process for them as well. And then, you know, eventually when I did all the different pieces, then it felt sort of appropriate to start working on LCAP. I don't know. Mm. They're actually interesting. I mean, if if I'm talking about LCAP specifically, one of the things that I think I did learn from LCAP, though, was that of the eight years that I kept punting, part of that was because I kept thinking that one of those years, it would look easy. You know, I'd look at it and be mm-hmm. like, this is the year because now it's easy. Or like, mm-hmm. I kept hoping that I would become such a good rock climber that it would like feel easy to me somehow. Mm-hmm. And then after eight years, I basically realized that it was never going to be easy. And at some point, <laughs> I was just going to have to. Got any shorter. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I mean, you know, and I'd gotten better as a climber and I'd, you know, learned a lot, but I was like, it's still just never going to be easy. And so I think mm-hmm. the lesson was that at some point, you just have to buckle down and do the hard work, you know, mm-hmm. let's start doing the prep work and the, the training mm-hmm. and whatever. Mm-hmm. And, and so then when I started directly working on LCAP, then it basically took me another year or two before I, I you know, sort of a year and a half, two years before I did it. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, in retrospect, like if I'd had to free solo LCAP sooner, I probably mm-hmm. could have started doing that prep work, you know, many years earlier. And maybe it would have taken one more year of direct effort. But I don't know. I mean, basically, when, when you're talking about taking on big problems, it's like mm-hmm. sometimes you want to like build up to them, but then but then sometimes you just have to start working on it. It's never going to be easy. You just have to start yeah. like chipping away at the at the yeah. direct thing that you want to do. Part of what you have done, and I guess how you've done it, has has been becoming a, a storyteller of sorts. But I, I remember reading somewhere that you were you didn't like the the, the notion of sort of getting onto the the kind of Alex Honnold, Mister Motivator, speaking circuit kind of vibe. But storytelling is important, especially because you, you've done something so far beyond most people's. Um, 
frames of reference or experience that you have to kind of explain it. This is my waffling way of asking about storytelling and climate and whether there's some crossover there like how are you using storytelling to get people thinking differently about this that's an interesting question and i've never really thought about it but i would say that well so i don't think storytelling comes naturally to me at all Mm. Uh, i mean i've always hated public speaking i've always been deeply you know i'm I'm introvert introverted all the way Mm. through like i'd rather not do public events that said i've embraced it because it allows me to be a professional climber and i love going climbing Mm. And so like, that's fine. And I've definitely gotten way better at it over the years. And now I feel totally comfortable doing public. Event. Part of that is because mm. of the free solo film tour. I was basically mm. doing five or six events a day for six months. It's like boot camp, you know, and by the end of that, you're kind of like, you know, I think I can handle doing public events. And, and I certainly see the value in storytelling uh, as much because I've been so inspired by so many stories in my life. You know, I mean, mm. I look at all kinds of, you know, like I draw inspiration from all kinds of places, but I certainly appreciate the value of storytelling. Mm. That said, I think that with my direct work in climate, if you can call that, like what we've done through the Hanel Foundation, Mm. I've always been more inclined towards action, like supporting Mm. direct projects. And there are other nonprofits in the US that specifically uh, support sort of storytelling around climate or like public education or things Mm. like that, like trying to help people understand the climate crisis and what they can do. And I've sort of always intentionally shied away from that and preferred to just do the work itself. Because mm. while there's obviously a role for educating people, it's also just important to do things, you know, like mm. to actually do the work. And I think that, you know, I, I personally prefer, you know, to start by doing like you just do mm. the thing and then let people learn along the way, mm. even though there's obviously a role for each. So I don't know. I mean, storytelling is super important, but like, but it's just not my passion in the same way. Talk, you know, like talk I'd rather is, just talk is cheap. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's the thing is I don't want to say talk is cheap because there's some there's some educational nonprofits in the U.S. that um or the sort of advocacy groups mm. that that try to influence voting and and it's true that if you can elect one key legislator in the right place, it can have a bigger policy impact than any kind of direct action that that like the Honolulu Foundation let's say mm. what whatever achieved. And I mean I get that I understand that rationally, and yet I still in some ways just feel like i don't want to say it's like the more moral action but it's like it just feels correct to me to start by doing the thing itself and then let Mm. everything else follow from your actions Mm. well speaking of doing the thing and and the whole foundation started with you putting a a third of your income into solar projects ultimately i'd imagine you you like simplicity starting a foundation means complexity um but yeah why 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 foundation why solar yes yeah all, all fair questions um so I started the foundation. Okay, well, okay. So it started with me basically living in my van by myself. This will be the long form answer that just kind of lays it all out. Just because I mean, what's the point of a podcast if not telling a, a full story? But um, so I'm living in my van. I was concerned about the environment. I cared. I wanted to do something useful. And I basically started making more than I needed to live. Obviously, overhead was very low in my van at the time. I was living by myself in a, in a van that I couldn't stand up in. So you're sort of like, okay, this, this is a simple existence. But uh, but I'd done a couple of commercials and like TV commercial random things, you know, where I'm suddenly like making more than I need. And I'm like, oh, that's weird. And uh, and part of it actually was my, my sister was working as a public school teacher at the time and mm-hmm. making, you know, basically I did this one commercial where I made maybe like three years worth of salary mm-hmm. for my public school teaching sister in like two days of having fun with my friends. And I was like, there is no justice in this. Like, the, the, you know, basically there's it makes no sense that sort of sports and entertainment get so overpaid and, and useful things in society are so underpaid. And I was like, oh, that just doesn't seem right. And I was sort of like, 
on the other hand, I like doing the work. I mean, it's super fun to shoot a TV commercial. It's interesting. You're working with your friends. And so I was like, I don't want to say no to the work, but if I'm going to do that kind of work, I should put that money to use doing something, you know, beneficial. And so that was kind of where I started. I was like, I should be donating a lot of money to charity. And then, and then I decided that if I was going to be donating a lot of money, I may as well just do it through my own foundation. Because even then, I mean, I wasn't nearly as, as well known then as, as I am now, but I kind of knew that, um, you know, that I was some kind of public figure. And if I did it in a public way, it could definitely influence more, more giving, you know, basically it could have a bigger impact if done publicly. And, and I always felt like that was a little bit douchey. I mean, you know, naming a foundation after yourself is like kind of douchey, but at the same time, <laughs> if it doubles the impact or whatever else, then it's kind of mm-hmm. worth it. You know, it's yeah. like, I can, I can swallow the douchiness and just kind of be like, this is the right way. If, if it has a better effect. So then, so I started donating, so I, you know, so I sort of made the Honol Foundation. And actually, when I started, I was just donating money through a donor advised fund. So you're sort of operating under somebody else's nonprofit umbrella, so mm-hmm. to speak. And, and I was just finding a handful of organizations each year that were doing work that I thought was was win win for the environment and, and for people. And this kind of stemmed from different climbing expeditions where I traveled to places where I realized that if environmental projects don't help the human communities nearby, there's just no real point in protecting the environment. You know, there's so many people on earth that are struggling with basic needs. If you're not helping them while helping the environment, then there just isn't really a point. I mean, you know, there's still, it's still worth promoting conservation for conservation's sake, but there's so many win-win solutions where it's good for the environment and good for people. You're in 27 countries, I think at at least, and, and what, 70, at least 70 partners, grantee partners that how are you how are you finding them and how do you how do you decide where to target so now we find them just through an open call grant application process and now we have a staff and everything but uh but in the first years i was just finding organizations online i was just googling trying to find projects that i thought were were inspiring in the right way and that's actually what eventually led us to solar was that i so consistently found projects that seemed win-win that you know they so often were solar projects um, mm. Because solar is is so often an elegant solution to to problems of energy equity, but also environmental issues. I mean, basically, just solar is 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 the future. You know, I was like, this is this is such an obvious win in in so many places for so many types of different problems. And so, I'd been sort of directly supporting different solar projects around the world for for several years, and then eventually, the Honol Foundation became its own five hundred one c three, the tax status in the U.S. that makes it an official nonprofit. And, and then, you know, we have a staff executive director and now we have a team of six or something. Well, now we have enough of a team that I can't remember off the top of my head, how many there are. That, that's when you know that the organization has kind of grown up a bit when you're sort of like, well, is that person full-time or part-time? And like, what's, you know, anyway. And so now it's like a full-on team. And so, uh, we have an open call for grants each year where literally hundreds of local nonprofits around the world will apply for the grants. And then it's our uh, you know, our, our job is to basically find the best applications from around the world. Mm-hmm. But the last couple of years, we've been giving over 2 million in, in grants to small scale organizations around the world. But there's this incredible pipeline of projects. You know, I mean, we're choosing the best ones that we can, but they're probably, mm-hmm. uh, you know, 50 million plus projects in, in like viable projects, like projects that would work and that are good, but just aren't the absolute best. Um, that we just aren't able to fund because uh, you know we just need a check gun to budget on that front. Is is there a is there a, a, a an L cap for the for the foundation? I don't want to descend into climbing cliche and talk about cruxes, but is there something that needs unlocking right now? Like, what's the biggest hurdle? No, actually, I part of what I find very satisfying about the work that the Honor Foundation is doing is that there isn't any real crux. Is literally mm. the more money you raise, the more of an impact you can have. Mm. 
And I mean, if we had a budget to the scale of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, let's say, like in the order of, of tens of billions, then there would be different cruxes because then you would start thinking bigger picture, like what's the future of energy? You know, like you like whole different things. But we're talking about community scale solar projects around the world. And right yep. now there's an enormous appetite, like sort of unmet need for that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, we could probably scale the Hanel Foundation up to like $100 million a year and still stay in, in the same space for the next decade at least and then beyond that maybe we'd have to start thinking you know it's like basically it's a problem that's not going to be solved anytime soon and and the broader principle of of energy equity you know like so when we started the Honol foundation it wasn't really clear that the world would transition to renewables you know i mean this is like 10 12 years ago and it's kind of like oh well who knows um now it's pretty clear that the world is totally transitioning that's like you know, I mean, there there are enough economic forces at play that that the world is transitioning to 100% renewable, whether it's in the next 10 years or 50 years, but it, like it is happening. That said, there's still roughly a billion people on Earth that don't have access to power, and many of them will not be served by that transition one way or another. But, you know, when the world transitions to renewables by 2050, let's say, there's still going to be hundreds of millions of people on Earth with no access to power who are just like not served by the market economy at all, and you're kind of like basically there's this huge need you know it's like the, the, there's a lot to be done and so i think think we're pretty content just chipping away at, at that problem for now and if people if people want to help you chip away what's the best way of doing that it's funny because we actually get a lot of people asking like you know how can we help and they basically like mm-hmm. want to go to exotic places to like help people mm-hmm. there and i'm like and, and and i totally understand that and that's that's still a worthwhile thing to consider but that's kind of like the like the tourist version of of charity and I'm kind of like, it's like the most self-serving form. And it's totally understandable. And, and, I, and I applaud people's intentions because like they do mean well. But I'm sort of like, if you're trying to solve the climate crisis, you don't solve it by flying around the world to just like go help somebody bolt panels on a roof. You know, it's like, because your overall carbon impact is going to be higher than than the actual project, especially with like a lot of off-grid projects that are relatively small scale. It's like, you know, if you're flying to to Africa, let's say, to like install, to help distribute solar lanterns, you know, you better be giving away like, a million solar lanterns to offset the, your flight there. It's like totally crazy. And so basically the, the best way to contribute is to is to donate. And, you know, you can go to honolfoundation.org. And, and that's the thing is that when we're supporting these projects, we're supporting community organizations around the world. So it's like a community will come up with what they think is the best solution for their community. So whether that's like a solar powered, uh, you know, like refrigeration unit for their farming products or, you know, it's like basically it's unique to each community, like how they're going to use solar to, to benefit the community. But they'll have some organization, they'll source the materials, they'll have a plan, we'll vet the plan. We have a technical advisory committee, we make sure that it all works, that the that the that the ideas work. And then we fund the idea and then they implement it. And mm. you know, and we get updates and we see how the project works and, and we uh we sort of debrief. But, you know, nobody needs to go there, nobody's like bringing the materials. You know, it's mm. all sourced locally, it's all uh you know, you're all hiring local as much as you can. It's just Basically, I mean, people know what's best for their own community. They just need the money. And so the most useful thing is to give them the money to do the thing they need to do. Has there been a particular story that's been gratifying, inspiring for you that's, that's sort of caught your imagination of the, what you've been able to see through the, through the foundation? There are a few. I mean, I don't know, like um, like one in particular that I like is uh, Asociación Maya. It's like a, a school for indigenous girls in Guatemala. And actually, we just wrapped up... Uh, I, I just saw in one of the board updates for the Honolulu Foundation that uh, the project's like officially like done, done, yeah. uh, and the you know the, the system's on. It's saving the school, and and so it's just a grid tied solar system on the on the roof of the school. All it's yeah. doing is cutting their electricity bill, 
it's saving that school. I think that the board document I just saw is like saving them seven grand a year or something. So it's mm-hmm. not even it's not even crazy numbers. But you have to assume that in rural Guatemala, that's like, you know, somebody's salary. And mm-hmm. so, you know, that's like one extra teacher, like some extra projects each year. But the school is for indigenous girls. And uh, and I had a couple of uh, uh, I had a Zoom call with some of the girls. It's like a class project or something. And uh, and they're all incredibly smart and ambitious and interesting. You're sort of like, oh, these are like the future of Guatemala, basically. Like some of these girls are going places for sure. And so I think to me, a simple project like that, where you're kind of like, you know, it's good for the it's good for the environment in so much as you're you're greening the grid a little bit. You're like, mm-hmm. oh, that school is running largely off solar now. That's great. But moreover, it's furthering the school's mission, which is educating mm-hmm. educating girls and. I don't know if you ever read like Project Drawdown or any of these other sort of climate change books, but but basically empowering women and and educating women are like two of the the biggest ways to fight climate change, sort of counterintuitively, but but can have some of the biggest impact environmentally. And so mm-hmm. I look at a project like that where I'm like, this is win win in every way. You know, it's good for the school, it's good for the girls, it's good for the environment. Like that is great, and and it's simple, you know. But it's the kind of thing where you're like, this should be the norm on every school in Guatemala, basically. Well, yeah. I mean, really around the world. Because it's like, why should an educational facility be wasting money by basically, why should they be paying some fossil fuel company or utility or whatever? You're kind of like, why not keep that money in the community paying teachers? We're like, that just seems like such a better way forward. And you did, um, you've articulated this wonderfully elsewhere. You said that you you realize there's no point protecting the environment if that doesn't also improve the standard of living. Nobody cares about the environment unless their basic needs are met. I'm intrigued. Have you ever used solar on on expedition? For me, I, I think it was... 2005 maybe in greenland and we had these like clunky old school photovoltaic panels that you kind of roll up i just remember being blown away and i'm like why isn't this everywhere you want to hear a funny story so uh this is slightly embarrassing for all those involved in in this uh, north face expedition to queen modland actually but so we went to antarctica uh, in uh 2017 um it was actually the same year that i freeze out all cap later that year i went to antarctica for this north face expedition and so it's like Conrad Anchor, Jimmy Chin. It's all the like heavy hitters on the North Face team. And I actually didn't want to go on the trip because I thought it'd be kind of a waste of my rock climbing. And I actually tried to kill the trip because I thought it seemed too expensive and too crazy. And the trip did, w- just wouldn't die. And so I wound up on this trip. Turns out it was one of the most sort of affirming expeditions in my life. It turned into yeah. this incredible life experience and I learned a ton. It was, it was, it was an incredible trip. But we show up there and, uh, you know, without blaming anybody somebody uh brought a generator in but basically didn't bring oil for the generator there was like gas but no oil and the generator just like didn't work full stop and so day one on the glacier we discover in base camp in antarctica we discovered that there's no generator and we're supposed to be making a film for the project and so there's like drone batteries and camera batteries and and then all our personal just like powering phones for listening to music mm-hmm. things like that like real basic energy needs but, but so it's not crazy because anyway we had one person on the trip, Pablo Durana, who's this incredible filmmaker who I've worked with on a bunch of projects. But um, he was there as the cameraman. He was the only like non like not on screen. You know, everybody else is like part of this expedition, like climbing, and he's just there to shoot. And so he wound up having all the panels on the solar panels on the team because each person had like different little personal panels. He put panels like over his entire tent. And because it's 24 hours of daylight, he basically just woke up and moved the panels around like all night long well like all day every day and he slept with his batteries he cradled his batteries he charged things nonstop. but basically the entire expedition ran off pablo's tent for the whole trip and it turns out we never needed the generator it didn't affect us at all they flew the drone the whole time they shot cameras they shot time lapses they like literally did everything that we were going to do 
I mean, mm. Pablo slept way less, and, and I think Pablo got kind of worked. But but it basically it all functioned fine, and I was like, that is mm. incredible because I was kind of like, why would we even bring a generator to begin with if it turns mm. out we can do it off solar? It's like. Yeah. Yeah, basically in the right places, solar is just such a better answer. Looking back at your extraordinary career and, and the work you're doing now, is there something you you know now that you wish you knew when you started out? Oh, I don't even, I don't know. What, what, what would you say? Well, to condense it into a slightly cliched kind of one line, I, I, for me, it's like success is not a finish line. I think I've sort of learned that along the way too. But I think that the one difference is that climbing uh, is just so much more fun that mm. I think it's easier to enjoy the process as a climber and not be quite as mm. uh, results-oriented because the day-to-day of climbing and the day-to-day of training is actually quite mm. enjoyable, and I would do it mm. for pleasure either way. And so mm. I think it makes it a lot easier. But um, I, I don't know what I would tell my, my younger self. I mean, if, if I were to give younger me some advice, I think, I mean, I think I'm supposed to answer this question with some, like, really great <laughs> life wisdom, you know, like some kind of... Like, oh, that's the thing you should know. But I actually, I would, I would give myself a bunch of very specific, uh, like training advice and and just things to just optimize a little better. You know, it's like, oh, I wish I had done a few things a little bit differently sooner. Like, I wish I had been a little bit smarter about like uh, self care, like body work, stretching, mm-hmm. basically taking care of myself. I'm 38 now, and I, I basically have to take care of myself a little bit more than I did when I was 23. Mm-hmm. But I kind of wish that I'd started all those kind of habits when I was 23 even though I didn't necessarily need it then, but I just think in terms of longevity and, and, you know, like uh, Mm. healthy lifestyle, whatever. Um, Not that I've had like any real issues with injuries or anything, but I just think that I could probably, you know, preserve several extra years if you, if you treated your body like a true temple from the very beginning. But, but no, I think the things that I would tell myself are all like very niche (laughs) and like, it just, I don't know. Like I I went to I went to university for one year. I'm like, that was a total waste. You know, it's like, what did I do? I should have just gone climbing sooner basically. Mm -hmm. Like, cause I was like deeply unhappy, didn't care about what I was studying and wound up spending all my time climbing anyway. I should have just embraced that. I loved going climbing and just started doing that a year sooner. I'm determined to be this really annoying granddad who can still like walk on his hands and bust out chin-ups and deadlift whatever but but i know that can't go on forever where's your head i would say i've started thinking about those kinds of things as well i i think that i'm basically in the same category as you where i think right now i could meet all of my lifetime prs and things if i if i tried in, in different mm. categories and stuff and and actually um i mean so today's a rest day but there's a pretty good chance that uh, i might do the hardest sport route i've ever done tomorrow i've been like um, because, because my wife's expecting we're at home for several months, mm-hmm. like basically waiting for baby number two. And so I've been just working on, uh, like training and, and hard climbing mm-hmm. around the house. Um, and so there's a decent chance that, that, uh, basically I'm sort of close to doing something that I've never been able to do before that that's mm-hmm. near home. And, um, so maybe tomorrow. So, I mean, you know, I might be physically peaking right now though. I mean, mm-hmm. I know that the reality <laughs> is that I'm not at my physical peak compared to in my twenties. But mm. I'm also a lot smarter about how I train them, you know, mm. and climbing is also so much of a skill sport and a, a technical sport that it's not just pure strength. You know, it's not like being an Olympic weightlifter or something. It's like mm. a lot of it is mm. knowing how to do the thing well. And so, mm. um, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty optimistic that I can maintain another 10 years at least of, of performance climbing and, and probably improve grade wise. I mean, mm. uh, we'll see, though. We'll see. I mean, yeah, you're right that there's the inevitable decline at some point. But I think that climbing is pretty forgiving in that way because so much of climbing is about adventure and discovery and uh, establishing new routes and, you know, like creating new climbing areas, things like that. Things that don't require cutting edge physical fitness. They just require an adventure spirit and like a, you know, like the the right knowledge. 
and I'm I'm pretty I'm pretty sure I'll be doing that stuff my whole life, you know, because I just love going climbing. Um, I mean, in some ways, it's going to be a relief when I don't have to care about the physical side of it. And I can just go have fun climbing easy things and creating routes and doing whatever, just having adventures in the mountains, because that's like obviously a lot easier than having to train all the time. Like, you know, like I trained in a little home gym yesterday. It's sort of like a three, three and a half hour session. My arms felt like noodles. I feel totally blasted and it's fun. And I like doing that. But you're like, man, it's kind of hard work. You know, it's like it's pretty tiring. I don't know. I mean, yeah, someday I'll just be like, screw that. I'm just going to go for an adventure in the mountains and call it good. That'll be that'll be way more fun. It probably sounds like I'm fishing for another like kind of one liner, but it, it doesn't have to be. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But um, I, and I had this thought last year, what would a one minute podcast be like? Like what if we, if we, if we could, if you only had a minute or less to, to say something that you wanted people to go away and turn over in their minds, at least if, if not act upon, like what, what would that, what would you want to have as the, if we had to edit this down to six seconds, what would be the takeaway? I would just abstain. I just had to go shoot some uh, TikTok <laughs> what videos. Was the for, uh... Swallow, swallow the douchiness. Just do the work. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But even that, when you, without context doesn't sort of loses its its point you know like mm. I, I was i just had to do some uh, tiktok videos for a sponsor and i was like this is the most soul-sucking thing i've ever done because i was like you know when you start trying to distill things down to like 18 seconds i mean the whole mm. point is to do hard things it takes a long time it takes a lot of effort mm. you know i mean mm. you freaking spent 108 days skiing you know it's like it's horrible <laughs> towing a sled i mean that's like horrible it took, about, it took about 15 years to get to that point that's one of those things uh once you have kids don't you feel like some of those types of ideas you're just like who cares because feel like the uh the opportunity costs get so much greater where you're like mm. yeah i could do a six month walking expedition and that might be fun except if mm. i had to leave my wife and kid for that long then it's definitely not worth it yeah you know it's like agree. that's a. Uh, that's kind of where I am. And I mean, thankfully, climbing offers so many close to home, you know, like mm. basically I can have a, I can basically live a great life as a climber without having to go on huge expeditions if I don't want to. I mean, I, I like going on trips and, and, you know, sort of pushing myself in a big way. But, but that, that for me now could be like a once a year kind of thing as opposed mm. to like a nonstop sort of thing. But mm. anyway. Gosh, well, there we are. Um, Alex Honnold, we're both both edging into middle age and uh, to talk yeah, about yeah, the exactly. family and not doing expeditions. You should, you should uh, title this podcast, Two Broken Down Old Adventurers Talk About What They Used to Do. <laughs> Talking <laughs> about the glory days of, yeah. Wonderful. Um, Alex Honnold, thank you for your time. Thank you for joining me on New Frontiers. Pleasure chatting and good luck with the podcast, man. I think it's great that, you, great that you're doing. I'm particularly happy to tell you that this episode of New Frontiers is brought to you by the Financial Times. For free articles and for up to 40% off a standard digital subscription, visit ft.com slash newfrontiers. That's ft.com slash newfrontiers. Offer available until 28th of March. One of the common threads between my polar career and the work I do today as an investor is the importance of navigating confidently and having the knowledge and the tools that let me take bold decisions. For me, the FT has been an essential tool in navigating a life and a new career in an equally challenging environment. There's also Climate Capital, the FT's dedicated climate change resource, where you can not only stay one step ahead on the most pressing climate developments, but you can also find out how upcoming New Frontiers guest Patrick Grant is pioneering plastic-free sportswear at Community Clothing. Thank you for joining me on New Frontiers. For more stories and insights, you can visit my website, bensaunders.com. And please don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. I want to leave you with a thought from Norwegian explorer Fridjof Nansen, who wrote this in 1928. It is a difficult time you are living in, no doubt. 
and the world does not give you a bright outlook just now, perhaps. But it is an interesting time. Many important things are happening, and it is full of great problems for you to solve. It is you who have to create the future and make the world a better place to live.